Isaiah 27, let's read verses 1 through 6 and then we're going to pray. Isaiah 27, verses 1 through 6. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Kind of gives us a little bit of a clue, doesn't it, about what this Leviathan may be. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. How does that all fit together? Well, let's pray and find out. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you will grant us, Lord, your wisdom and understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. Today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. First verse, in that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. First of all, let me point out that the phrase in that day is a a clue to the end times. It is a clue to that uh, time that we call in the scriptures the great and awesome day of the Lord. And again, I encourage you to read Joel chapter 2 where it talks about the great day of the Lord. Read those, actually those chapters in the prophecy of Joel to see that the day of the Lord is, is, is a day of darkness. It is not a day of light. A day, it is a day of judgment. So this is just a reminder that when we see this, we're coming actually to a uh, kind of a... Um, completion, as it were, of what we started back in chapter 24 called the uh, Isaiah's uh, Little Apocalypse, where he gives us in, in some uh, small sense a, a, a quick picture of what is going to take place in the time of judgment that is to come. And so when we get to chapter 27, being the last chapter of this thing called the uh, Little Apocalypse, as it were, that uh, he begins this particular chapter with this phrase, in that day the Lord with his severe sword, uh, great and strong will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Now, conquering great and terrible beast is, as some say, a thing of legend and myth. And uh, certainly a lot of people would want to apply that particular thought to the Bible and say, well, you know, when they mention Leviathan, it's just this myth that came through all of these old ancient cultures and old ancient teachings from uh, all of the various seaworthy nations that, uh, you know, saw things out in the, in the seas, you know. And as a matter of fact, you know, for the last few years, of course, they've been doing those investigations up there in Loch Ness about, you know, the Loch Ness monster, what do they call her, Nelly, you know, so... They've even made a commercial with her and she throws a, you know, spits out a Toyota truck out of her mouth and stuff, you know. So, it's a, you know, we get to that point where we think that this is all just, a, you know, a thing of legend and myth. But, his, but history does teach us this. It teaches us that the nations that surrounded Israel had their own stories. They had their stories of great sea creatures and monsters, one, one of which was compared to Leviathan. And this is the term that is found even almost... Uh, uh, in, in its, in its uh, Hebrew form, Leviathan, uh, there was this, uh, uh, what's called a Ugaritic chaos monster called Lotan. And you're going to sit here going, what is he saying? But I'm just giving you a little history. You know, this is, this is uh, uh, actually a Canaanite uh, uh, myth, uh, and, and uh, they compared it to uh, this Leviathan. It was supposedly this, this monster, this sea monster, was destroyed by the Canaanite god Baal. Now, we've heard of Baal and seen Baal in the scriptures from uh, its creation mythology. So in this Ugaritic, which is called, uh, you know, the, it's really just Canaanite 
uh, mythology, they, they have this, this monster called Lotan. It almost sounds like something that came out of, you know, these uh, uh, animated uh, cartoons and stuff. But uh, out of this, I'm quite sure, came the idea of great sea dragons. So this is one of the older ones. So out of this comes this idea of great sea dragons, and the dragon being the operative word here. Uh, we're not sure if we, if we have an equivalent to that great sea creature, although some think that, uh, you know, they, they've applied it to the crocodile. They, they thought that there was a crocodile that looked rather uh, reptilian, as it were, and, and still does, by the way. Uh, and and uh, they, they've applied Leviathan to some great large uh, 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 crocodile or, or some mighty whale, you know. For, for many years, they applied the term Leviathan to, to the whales. As a matter of fact, when you read the, the, the book uh, by Her, Herman Melville called Moby Dick, uh, which I really encourage you, you know, read some of these great classic books. Uh, we learn a lot. And, you know, these people that wrote these books, they knew the Bible. They quote the Bible and, and use it uh, extensively, whether they believed it or not, but they used it. But, but in any event, when he begins his book, he, he's got this big preface. I mean, it's it almost just this tremendous introduction. And, and throughout, he's giving all of these legends concerning the whale and, 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 and mentions Leviathan as, 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 a, uh, as some kind of a comparative... Uh, uh, beast, as it were. So, uh, is it a mighty whale? Is it a fish? Is it a mighty fish? Is it a, you know, just a uh, overgrown crocodile or, or what? You know, is it really maybe a, a a prehistoric type of a being that you know stayed alive and, and made its way to, uh, you know, to dwell in the in the deep sea like uh, Nelly in 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 Scotland or, or what? <laughs> is it a dragon? Certainly, again, a dragon is an interesting word or term. Now, the, the book of Job mentions Leviathan twice. Uh, here again, I don't want you to think I'm going into some great in-depth study of Leviathan, but I've already you know, spent a lot of time with it anyway. But I just, just to give you a little bit of background here where we're going, uh, the book of Job mentions Leviathan twice. Job chapter 3, verse 8, may, may those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. In Job 41, verse 1, again it is mentioned, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? The psalmist also mentions Leviathan twice. These are all the times that we see the term Leviathan here. Psalm 74 verse 14. It says, you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. This is speaking to God in saying that it was God who would break the heads of Leviathan. And notice the heads of Leviathan. It's plural. Uh, and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. And then in Psalm 104, verse 26, There the ships sail about, there is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. Speaking of the sea. Now one thing we do know from this text of ours in Isaiah 27 about Leviathan is that it is identified with a serpent. You see that. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Another thing we know from our text about Leviathan that is not only that it's identified with a serpent, but it's also identified with the sea. And so as a fleeing and twisting serpent, it is the picture that we're given is, is one of resisting God. Listen carefully. It is one of resisting God because in the language of, 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 of twisting and, and, uh, of, of twisting and um, uh, uh, fleeing, it is the picture of coiling to strike. And so here Isaiah says, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, from the other passages uh, that we read, we, we can get the idea that Leviathan as a mighty serpent-like monster tied to the sea and resisting God will eventually be crushed by the Lord. That's the picture here. And of course we are aware of the reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden being, in fact, Satan. 
And nothing really tells us that Satan himself cannot transform himself from that uh, serpent in the garden to a different kind of serpent that's in the sea. Nothing tells us that he can't do that. And so a sea serpent that, that can be known as a dragon has its connection to the great deceiver to be later known as a dragon. By the way, turn to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And look at these particular verses as we try to tie all of this together to get an understanding of why Leviathan is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 27 of Isaiah. And here in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we are told, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. There's the mention of dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Now we know who this dragon is, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Of course, this is speaking of eternity past. This is speaking of that time when there was that tremendous battle that was going on. with Satan, you know, the one who wanted to have all of the honor and glory in heaven. And he's cast out. But he's called here in Revelation 12, a dragon. And in the next chapter, in Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2, John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. (laughs) And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And what did we read in one of those verses of of Psalm 74, verse 14? You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. And here it says, And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. Who's the dragon? Satan, the devil, as we saw in chapter 12. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. I think we've identified uh, Leviathan. I think we've come now to realize what Leviathan is. And when we apply it to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1 and following, Satan as the serpent or as Leviathan or as the dragon, held the nations that surrounded Israel in bondage through their superstitious religions and the remnant no longer, the remnant of Israel that was surrounded by this particular uh, superstition, the remnant no longer needed to fear the false gods of the Gentiles. What was one of the major problems of Israel for, throughout its, its existence as far as a, as a nation during the times of the kings, one of the greatest problems it had was idolatry. It had taken everything that it had seen the other nations worship and wanted to worship those things as well on the high places or in the high places. And, 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 and then they, they built their Ashtaroths. They built their, their, uh, their, their uh, images and all. But what Isaiah is getting us to to focus upon is that this very deceiver, this Leviathan, this devil, this serpent who deceives is going to be crushed. And Israel no longer needs to fear the false gods of the Gentiles. And so Isaiah predicted the ultimate defeat of Satan when Messiah's kingdom conquers all at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we as God's people have been set free from bondage to the enemy, set free from bondage to the false gods that he seductively deceives people to worship. And I can tell you this, there are false gods being laid out before us today by Satan, by the enemy himself, but they're in a much more sophisticated form. We find it on TV, we find it in movies, we find it in magazines, we find it on the internet, we find it in all kinds of sites where we ought not to be. And it brings people's minds and hearts to worship, to make idols again. A few years ago, before the internet, well, before Al Gore invented the internet, we were talking about that today. Before Al Gore invented the internet, we, we, uh, we used to say, you know, that we made idols of the things that we possessed. And we still do. But now we've become more sophisticated. We don't call it idol worship. 
We call it sophistication, but, but it's the same thing. It's still sin. And it's still an abomination to God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul said, And you being dead. Notice what it says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When is this? This is in our fleshly time. Notice. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive. God saved us. God gave us new life in Christ. He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Folks, don't, take, don't sell this verse short. Don't even sell that little phrase short. Having forgiven you all trespasses. That is a wonder, folks. That is why we sing Amazing Grace. It is so amazing to think of what God has saved us from, what God has forgiven us of. having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And notice verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Where? On the cross. (laughs) He's disarmed principalities and powers. He's done it, and He's still doing it. But there's coming a time when He will complete that work. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, uh, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, who we've been talking about, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Folks, we need to come to grips with this thought that God wants us delivered from every bondage. And Christ is our deliverer. And this is why then we see this particular verse, verse 1, and we've spent a couple of minutes, a few minutes, talking about it. So that you can see why Leviathan is mentioned. Because what it leads to in this in the rest in the remaining of of this chapter is Israel's restoration. Israel's restoration. And again, I make mention of the fact that the phrase in that day has great significance in the prophetic language of Isaiah, for it signifies the three distinct divisions of this chapter. The first being the conquering of Leviathan, or the conquering of the enemy. The second being the chorus, as it were, the chorus of the vineyard, or the song of the vineyard. The third being the coming judgment. And notice, if you will, in verse 2, as we go on. Now it makes a little more sense as we go into verse 2. But notice, verse 1 began with, in that day. Verse 2 begins with, in that day. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I, I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. You know, as we studied in chapter 5, the vineyard is Israel. And so with prophetic consistency, the same thought applies here. Israel, or the vineyard, I should say, is Israel. But here, now, the, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah sees Israel in the future day as well as his, in his own day. He sees it in his own day, but he also sees it in its future day. The far fulfillment and the near fulfillment. Immediately we learn that this vineyard is one that bears fruit. How do we know? Because He says, a vineyard of red wine. It bears fruit. 
Special care now is given by the Lord in keeping this vineyard of Israel. Notice what he says. I, the Lord, keep it. Now, folks, take, take to heart that very statement. God keeps the vineyard. God keeps, He watches, He guards, He protects the vineyard. And notice that that's exactly what He says. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. And so, special care is given by the Lord in keeping this vineyard of Israel. Watering it, protecting it constantly against all enemies. And doing what? Bringing about peace. Bringing about peace. I, the Lord, keep it. I guard it. I protect it. And he says, fury is not in me. Before we go on, let's deal with this issue of watering. Let's deal with this issue of, of how the Lord waters and how the Lord satisfies thirsty souls. For many of us here, we, we didn't realize when we were unbelievers, when we were living for ourselves and not for the Lord, we didn't realize really that we were thirsty for something that was, that was real, something that was, uh, 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 something that was meaningful in our life. We thought everything we had was what, ma- what, what mattered. We thought everything in our life was meaningful because we made it meaningful. But when we began to realize that the things of this world could not satisfy us. If we had a little bit, we wanted more. If we had more, we wanted more than than what we had. If somebody else had more than we had, we wanted as much as they did or more. It was was always wanting more and never being satisfied. But it is the Lord who satisfies thirsty souls. And when we came to the realization that we were thirsty, that we were empty, that we needed that satisfaction because we couldn't get it in anything that this world had to offer. It was in God that we found it, in Jesus Christ. We found it in Him. And, and, and I don't know how to describe it as far as pictorially as it were, but, uh, you know, or visually or illustratively as it were, but, but when we received Christ, it was like this gushing of water just coming upon us that we could never, ever lose. And it continued just to fill us and fill us. And when we began to realize that the Word of God meant something now, it came to our our minds and our hearts uh, with with meaning, whereas before we didn't understand it. Am am I talking about us here? No? Okay. I just want to make sure. I just, you know, it's okay. Because I was going to get the hose and just start, you know, know, what do you call it, uh, you know, applying it uh, literally to you. Seeing if you can wake up there or something. Yeah. I, but, but that's the way it is. The water of God's Spirit just came upon us and we began to receive and we began to want more. But the more we wanted, the more we got. And we never ran out. And the only time we ran out is when we turned our eyes away from God. It is the Lord who satisfies thirsty souls. Hosea chapter 14 verse 5. God says, I will be the dew to Israel. I will be the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. In Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, the very first psalm, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Folks, when you read the Bible and you do it with all of your heart, what, what happens is you just don't want to get, you just don't want to finish. You want to keep going. You want to keep receiving. It's just that rich. And notice what happens in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, in its season whose leaf also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever it is that God wants us to do, it's going to happen because he keeps giving us what we need, that refreshment, that nourishment, everything that we need through that water that he pours out upon us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. That's a promise, in other words. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you shall be filled. Isn't that a wonderful promise? 
And doesn't it come to pass when we just say, oh God, I'm just thirsty for you. I know there are going to be people that say, you know, you don't have to say that all the time. You don't have to say that you're thirsty. You know, you're a Christian. You have everything now. You have everything you have in Jesus Christ. But you know what? I know you and, 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 and me. We, we all, we, we have those times of dryness. We have those times where we need to cry out and say, God, I, I feel so empty. I feel so dry. Lord, just, just, just pour again your spirit on me and, and grant me, Lord God, the understanding of your word and give me, give me just a, an opportunity, Lord, just to be alive again because I know that you've saved me. I know that, you've, that you keep me, but I'm human and I make mistakes. And, and Lord, you know, I, I don't need people to tell me. I mean, we sang this song, Breathe Tonight, and it's, isn't that a beautiful song? I love that song. This is the air I breathe. Man, this, this is everything. Everything. And, and we're desperate for the Lord, aren't I mean, people, some people will say, well, you don't have to be desperate. You already have the Lord. You don't have to be desperate. You know what? I'm human. And there's times when I just, I just, I just, hey, it's Valentine's. You know, I'm trying to make this point now. It's Valentine's. And, and most everybody, if, I, if you are alive and your heart is beating tonight, you probably got something for someone so that you could tell them, I love you. But you're not like those anti-Valentine's people who go up and say, oh, you knew I loved you 30 years ago? It's the same today, so don't worry about it. Folks, we need time and time again to reassure one another. Not for their sake or us. It's so that we can just keep that love alive. And Jesus does the same. He's always coming to us and loving us. We're not alone and then we sit around, where's Jesus? Lord, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. uh, Do you love me? I loved you 30 years ago when I saved you. Now, what's your problem? (laughs) He loves you and loves you and loves you. And He doesn't stop loving you. And you know when you know it the most is when you've fallen. That He comes to you and shows you a greater love. That's love. We hunger and we thirst for this righteousness. And we're filled every time we, we ask. In John chapter 7, verses 37-38, I used this the other day to close our Sunday morning study. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And, and by the way, the word for flow, there, it means it just continually flows. It just never ends. It never ends. It's the Lord who satisfies thirsty souls. It is the Lord who keeps watch night and day, day and night. Night and day. And you are the one. That's what he's singing to us. It's, it's Valentine's. I get a little romantic from time to time. The Lord watches us, keeps us night and day. Psalm 121, verses 3 through 5. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God never sleeps when He keeps watch over us. Behold, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And verses 4 and verse, uh, verses four and 5 give us a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness towards those who sincerely seek it. He is not angry, He says. He's not angry. It says, fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength. See the picture? He's not angry with his people, but yearns for them to return to him and to fervently trust him. That's why he says, take hold of my strength. That he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. We have peace with God because God has justified us as it says in Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God. When we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we came to know the, Jesus, we came to know the God of peace and, the, and, and peace with God. And it leads us now to the resulting blessing for the Lord's vineyard, which is fruit. And look at verse uh, uh, 
Well, we're going to look at it in a second. Let's talk about the fruit then. Because here he talks about the fruit of Israel. We can only be fruitful, folks. We can only be fruitful when we take hold of the strength of the Lord. Listen to what I'm saying. We can only be fruitful when we take hold of the strength of the Lord. We can only be truthful if we take hold of the strength. And when we take hold of the strength of the Lord, if we are, on, if, if we are only holding on to our own strength, listen carefully. If we are only holding on to our own strength, all we really have is weakness. If we're holding on to our own strength, all we really have is weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. One, one, of, one of the greatest passages of Scripture written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of, a, of an encounter with Jesus Christ. And, 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 and Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to hold on to the strength of the Lord. And when we hold on to the strength of the Lord, we're fruitful. There is fruit to come. When we last looked at the vineyard in chapter 5, we saw that it was overrun by thorns. But as, as for this vineyard in chapter 27, not a briar or a thorn can be found. In effect, the prophecy in verse 6 is being fulfilled right now. And I mean to say it is being fulfilled right now in the nation of Israel. As Israel has not only become the, one of the chief exporters of, of beautiful flowers, I'm sure that a lot of flowers that went out this week were, were from Israel, but it is also the third largest fruit exporting nation in the world. And folks, more than 50 years ago, there was nothing there. And today it is the third largest fruit exporting nation in the world. Isn't it interesting that the, much of the world that hates Israel still receives the fruit of Israel? It's interesting, isn't it? This is how God is blessing His nation and His people today. They have a long way to go still, as we. But God is blessing them. And the fruit is there. This is another example of proof that there is a God that God's word is true because Israel has brought forth fruit and God doesn't lie. Verses 7 through 9 is a new section. It says, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. The question is this, folks. Has the Lord chastised his people the same way that he has punished her enemies? That's what we found in verse 7. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Has the Lord chastised his people the same way that he has punished her enemies? The obvious answer is no. No. He doesn't treat his people the same way that he treats his enemies. Although he has corrected Israel heavily at times, his mercy towards them is all the more great. He didn't strike Israel as severely as he did the other nations that went astray. God's mercy towards Israel is shown in that he covers their sin. Notice verse 9, Therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. He covers their sin. This is, of course, ultimately fulfilled in, the, in Messiah's kingdom when Jesus comes to rule and reign for a thousand years here. Isaiah 59, for example, as we'll see much later on. But Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21 says, The Redeemer will come to Zion. Where is Zion? Jerusalem. 
The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul jumps into this particular statement here by saying in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 11, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it is something that is going to happen. Now when we, we see Paul say, you know, uh, so all Israel will be saved. But you have to understand, remember that he also makes a, makes a statement of, of uh, clarification. Qualifies the statement. Not all Israel is Israel. Israel will be those who truly trust in the Lord. That will be for another time for us. Verse 8, by the way. Going back to verse 8, if you look at it. It's somewhat of a difficult verse to translate. In measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. It's, uh, what is he saying? <laughs> One way of understanding this verse is seeing how careful God disciplines his people. The stroke of verse 7 was for correction. And he talks about striking Israel. The stroke of verse 7 was for correction, not destruction. In other words, it was carefully measured out. God debates over just what needs to be done. That, that's the purpose of that particular statement. He debates over just what needs to be done and will control his judgments by removing the harshest wind when he blows them away with the east wind. That's the picture. That's as simple as we can make it. In other words, God uses suffering as a discipline to bring his people to submission so that he will be sought in his holiness and his holiness will be sought as well. To seek the holiness of God. To seek a holy God. Their captivity would once and for all, by the way, their captivity would once and for all cure them of their idolatry. Remember earlier we talked about idolatry when we talked about Leviathan. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. I want you to notice something because here there's a, there's a little tie-in to, to this idea of how God measures out discipline. And he says here, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. That's the warning. Do you see the warning there? That's a, that's a definite warning for all of us. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed. Watch, lest you fall. And then he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, most of us just like that verse. And that's okay to like that verse, but you have to like it with the verse before, which is the warning. And then notice the next verse. Therefore, my beloved, the conclusion, flee from idolatry. Wow, what a tie-in. God measures these things out for us. Discipline is measured out in such a way that, that reminds us that God loves us. He loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, quoting, quoting from the Proverbs, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate and not sons. So God chastens those that He loves, that we might hold on to His strength, that we might trust Him through these things and these trials in our lives. He's not, as, as C.S. Lewis once thought of, of, once mentioned God, I mean, when, when, when C.S. Lewis began to go through his own trials of loss, he called God the great vivisectionist. He, he was calling God a, a, a person who was up there doing experiments on us. 
And he missed the point. Even though he had been preaching about this for so long. But he had preached it from outside of a bubble. I should say from inside of a bubble. But once the bubble was removed, it hit him. And he didn't realize what God was doing was strengthening him. When I am weak, then I am strong. I have learned both to be abased and to abound. I've learned to have nothing. I've learned to have everything. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. In the next section of chapter 27, Isaiah describes how a strong fortified city is besieged. God taking away His mercy temporarily until He fulfills all His purposes. Look at verses 10 and 11. Yet the fortified city will be desolate. There is really no no way to determine fully what uh, city uh, Isaiah is speaking of other than the fact that some people believe that it's Jerusalem, which is quite possible because we know what happens to Jerusalem in judgment through uh, by the Assyrians and then later on the Babylonians. We, we know that. We've studied that already. Uh, some believe that to be Babylon itself. And that's uh, a, a possibility. Not long ago we talked about uh, the city of God and the city of men. What, what man builds and what God builds. And so we can, we can look at that from a very general purpose when we in a general way I should say when we look at verse 10 yet the fortified city will be desolate the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness there the calf will feed and there it will lie down and consume its branches when its boughs are withered they will be broken off the women come and set them on set them on fire for it is a people of no understanding therefore he who made them will not have mercy on them and he who formed them will show them no favor and so there's a sense of judgment here, but but this may not only be referring to the city of, or the cities of nations, the cities of men that represent the world system, but also the apostate part of Israel. Let's consider that for just a moment. That is speaking of the apostate part of Israel. When when God rises in His fury to deal with man's rebelliousness and defiance toward His authority, He will not cease to exercise His vengeance until all who continue to resist Him are blotted out. This is what the Bible teaches us. As enemies of God, they may try to have all kinds of defenses against the Lord God, but will still be brought to nothing. In other words, they can be fortified cities, they can have walls, but those walls mean nothing to God when God brings judgment. The system of man will be so desolate that it will be like bare branches used only for fire. And that's, that's the picture here. That's how desolate these cities will be. And... No fruit. No fruit. We can go back to Isaiah chapter 10 for just a moment in verses 33 and 34 where it says, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bough with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. As he would do in Assyria's defeat, and we spoke about this back in chapter 10, but as he would do in Assyria's defeat, so he would do to the proud and the insolent who boast of their greatness and power. And again, you have to come back to that picture where there's, where there's prophetic uh, consistency, the, mes- the mentioning of boughs, the mentioning of thickets, and then, of course, the mention, as, as we just read, of, of these branches that are, uh, that are to be consumed, that are broken off, that are set on fire. Prophetic consistency, you see. Pride is going to be taken care of all the way to the end, you see. And then in verses 12 and 13, the last two verses of our text, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. By the way, this is a very interesting picture because what we're getting here is this almost the complete, if not all the complete land that was actually promised to Israel from Egypt to the Euphrates. Notice. 
shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one. You, O oh you, children of Israel, you'll be gathered one by one. Now, the significance is, of course, that each of us individually that come to God by faith. Speaking, of course, here of his people Israel, he says, you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day, and there's the phrase again, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt. And if you remember, we studied the fact that there would be those from Assyria and Egypt that would be coming to join in worship of God. Giving us an indication that it isn't just Jew alone, but Jew and Gentile worshiping God. And then it says, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. We know, we know that at the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he comes as the Son of Man to establish the kingdom of God on earth, we know that the great trumpet will indeed be blown to call the outcasts of Israel to return to Zion and be gathered to their longed-for Messiah and to rejoice in his favor. And as we've read so many times in the book of Zechariah and even in the book of Revelation, they shall see him whom they pierced. They shall know it is Yeshua. They shall know it is Jesus, the Messiah. They shall see him in all of his glory. Now in Joel chapter 2, and again I encourage you to go back and read about the day of the Lord, but notice the trumpet mentioned here is one of gathering. But it's also one of, of calling a sacred assembly together. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Everything has to stop when that trumpet blows. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, it says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. A trumpet to gather his people together. They gathered together, uh, they were gathered once, I should say, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. There are a lot of people that will say, well, when they gathered with Ezra and Nehemiah, that's when God gathered them, and so there's no more gathering. There's not another gathering like, you know, in other words, they're discounting the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about people that are Christians. They they have a totally different view of end times. They they think that everything that happened has already happened. Everything in the book of Revelation happened. Everything in Isaiah happened. You know, so it's all done. You know, now it's just a matter of getting through this. You know, let, let God you know, finish up whatever they think he started. I don't know what. But anyway, they say, well, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, they gather they, uh, they, to, you know, to rebuild the city, the temple of Jerusalem and all. But, you know, we've already seen that he will gather them again. Time and time again, we've seen in scriptures that they're going to gather them again, delivering his people from their bondage to the Gentile nations. That's going to happen again. The kingdom will be like an endless festival, an endless feast, and, 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 and holy day. It's, it's going to be a, a holy day of worship as the people rejoice in the Lord. There's going to be rejoicing unto God. There's going to be uh, solemnness, but at the same time, joy. It, it, we, we don't know what it's going to be like other than what we're told. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen again. And we believers in Jesus Christ today are also waiting. We're waiting for the sound of a trumpet. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about this trumpet. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We're going to put this together here in just a moment with what we studied last week about enter into thy chambers. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're waiting for that trumpet to sound. That trumpet. Which trumpet? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught together, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Folks, something to look forward to. We've got a trumpet to listen for. We need to be ready to hear it. Therefore, let's be steadfast in our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be steadfast. In other words, let's stand fast in Jesus Christ. Let's let's be immovable. Let's not let the winds of doctrine, let's not let the winds of the of the world come and, and move us in one direction or the other. Man, today, you know, we're supposed to be like we're supposed to be the rock. We're supposed to be grounded in the rock of Jesus Christ. But today, man, we're just like a bunch of branches going this way and that way too uh, too often in the church, you know. The wind blows this way, oh let's go do this. It's all a little looky luge, you know, all going together. Oh, the wind's gonna blow that way. Oh, let's go over here. And we just, you know, the wind blows every different way. Folks, let's be immovable. We know doctrine. We have the Word of God. We get into the doctrine of the Word of God. And then we're to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not going to be in vain. It isn't going to be wasted. Because Jesus said, I am coming again. I'm coming. Be ready. He said, look up. Your redemption draws near. Open your eyes to see him. Open your ears to hear the trumpet. Let's be ready. Leviathan is going to be defeated completely. He's already done in. The promise has already been given. Our victory is in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin and death defeated. Sin and death defeated. Can we live in that? Can we live in that truth today? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's pray.